to invite you to remain standing for this reading, which comes this morning from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 11 through 23. Jesus was brought before the governor. The governor said, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, that's what you say. But he didn't answer him when the chief priests and elders accused him. Then Pilate said, don't you hear the testimony they bring against you? But he didn't answer, not even a single word. So the governor was greatly amazed. It was customary during the festival for the governor to release to the crowd one prisoner whom they might choose. At that time, there was a well-known prisoner named Jesus Barabbas. When the crowd had come together, Pilate asked them, Whom would you like me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? He knew that the leaders of the people had handed him over because of jealousy. While he was serving as a judge, his wife sent this message to him. Leave that righteous man alone. I've suffered much today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to kill Jesus. The governor said, which of the two do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, they replied. Pilate said, then what should I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, crucify him. But he said, why, what has he done? And they shouted even louder, crucify him. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. If I can invite you to be seated, please. Before I begin this morning, um, I forgot during the announcements. If you'll notice on the back of your bulletin is the Holy Week schedule. And so next Sunday is the beginning of Holy Week with the Palm Sunday. And uh, we'll have worship as usual. Although the children are invited to do the palm processional at the beginning of church. So if you have children who would like to be a part of the palm processional, or even an adult that wants to be part of that, you need to be at church a couple minutes early so that you can get your palms, please. Um, also, you'll notice we're offering uh, a few options. The Lenten Bible study on March 31st, we'll continue that. And then we're offering a Monday, Thursday service with communion, uh, the choir, and worship at 6.30 p.m., and then a Good Friday service also at 6.30 p.m. Uh, Easter Sunday, we'll not have a children or youth Sunday school, but we'll have worship at 9.30. And so I'd encourage you to be a part of that. For those worshiping online with us or through the radio, uh, Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday will, will be offered online. We won't offer those on the radio broadcast, but we'll offer Easter to all three of those in Palm Sunday. All right, this morning we're continuing our sermon series where we're looking at the places of the Passion, locations within Jerusalem in G where different events in Jesus' life occurred. And so over the past four weeks, we've looked at different locations like Bethany, we've looked at the Mount of Olives, we've read, uh, gone to Gethsemane, and last Sunday we looked at the place where Peter uh, experienced the denial of Christ or where he denied Jesus as we looked at the courtyard of Caiaphas' house. And so our place of judgment that we're looking at today, or the place that we are talking about today, is actually one that's kind of the oddest. It's Pilate's Judgment Hall. And I'm going to say it's the oddest because I have to be honest with you, of all the sites that we're looking at, if you go Google it, there is really not that much information about uh, this place, including no movie. So there's no movie today. I'm sorry. And I looked, and I looked, and I looked, but there isn't one. And part of that might be, and you'll see in a minute, is because um, the site that we, we call Pilate's judge, Judgment Hall today is the rough location. But in terms of archaeological evidence 
and direct connection, it's probably, of all the sites we've looked at in this series and will continue to look at, it's probably the one that has the least of any of those. So according to tradition, and even ancient historians, the site we're looking at today, called the Judgment Hall of Pilate, is known as the Fortress Antonia. And so if you were to travel to, to Jerusalem today, you'll see the arrow there. There's a mock-up of the Temple Mount. It's there on the left. The temple's made. All the courts are there. And then I put an arrow right there where uh, the Fortress Antonia is believed to have been. But if you were to go there today, there's really not much that you go see. You go into this, um, this building and what they show you and pictures like this and maps. You're able to walk through some cisterns that are under the, the underground, you know, that used to hold water and trap water. But there's really not a ruin today that we know of as the Antonia Fortress. What we know about it from reading historians and other accounts is it was built in this location roughly by Herod the Great to serve both as an observation point into the temple courts, while also serving as a visible reminder of the power and presence of Rome, because what better way to remind the people of Israel that who is really in control than to have a Roman outpost directly next to the place where you're conducting all of your worship that, that is your identity as a people, right? And so like many structures in ancient times, this, this fortress was named or was built by someone and named in honor of someone else. So in this case, Herod the Great built the fortress early in his kingship of Israel before he enlarged the Temple Mount. At the time of his construction, you'll see on the slide, he was a supporter of the Roman general Mark Antony. And so this was during the Roman Civil War, and Mark Antony and Octavian were in battle to determine who was going to become the ruler, who was going to become the emperor. And so in their battles... Mark Antony was killed in 30 BC. Octavian became, um, became the ruler of Rome and he became the first Caesar that history knows him now as Caesar Augustus. Now here's where it's good is Herod managed to change his, his loyalty. So he was first loyal to Mark Antony in the middle and supported him and Mark Antony was a benefactor of Herod in supporting him and in, in his obtaining the kingship of Israel. But then in time, after the Civil War, Herod managed to change and basically used an argument that I was loyal to him, I'm going to be even more loyal to you. And so he was able to keep both his kingship and more importantly probably to him, he also was able to keep his life. But I think it's important for us to see this because he named this fortress after Mark Antony. So what does that tell us? It tells us that the fortress was completed before Octavian killed Antony, wasn't it? Because it's not often that people who are victors in a, in a battle and in a power struggle allow their adversary to be named on buildings and other places of honor, right? That just doesn't make sense, especially in ancient times. Who knows what will happen today? But um, in ancient times, that's definitely not something that happened. But I think what it does is it gives us a timestamp. So we can know that this fortress was completed, it had been um, commissioned, it had been, you know, everything had been done before 30 BC. Because Octavian never, Herod wouldn't have been able to even think of naming it after Antony once Octavian had defeated him. That would have meant Herod would have been killed. 
All right, so in terms of location, it says that, that this fortress is located adjacent to the Temple Mount and had direct access to the courtyard. All right, so as I was reading this week, there's a discrepancy in this. There's an ancient Jewish historian who was also uh, Roman. His name is Flavius Josephus. And he was both Jewish and he participated in some ways in the Jewish revolts. But then he managed to change sides halfway through and became an advisor to the Roman, the Roman army when they laid siege on Jerusalem. And so he's written numerous books, the Antiquities of the Jews and, and the Jewish Wars. And he writes this about this fortress. The fort of Antonia was situated at the angle formed by the western and northern colonnades of the temple court. It was built upon a rock 75 feet high and precipitous on all sides. It was the work of King Herod and a preeminent example of the breadth of vision which was inherent in his character. Here he describes it. For a start, the rock was clad from the base up with polished stone slabs, both for ascetic purposes and to deny purchase to anyone attempting to climb up or down. Then in front of the fort building itself was a four and a half foot wall behind which the whole structure of Antonia rose to a height of 60 feet. Okay, so he's describing a structure that is both eye-catching and also impressive standing next to the temple courts. Now there's been discussion, you can see the map, that actually some scholars believe that uh, Herod's temple was in one location and actually Josephus's um, description of the fortress Antonia was on a different portion of the temple mount and that there was a space between the two. Oh, here's where this is important to us. Because we can get wading into the weeds on the archaeology and all that stuff and, and I could talk about that all morning. Um, but I think what it's important for us to see is that this site and this location is where Jesus was taken. It's where Pilate would have had troops staged during this celebration of the Passover, troops that have come from all over in order to prop up the existing garrison that resided in Jerusalem during normal times. And so during these high holy days, what would happen is the, the, uh, the governor would come from Caesarea, which was this, this Mediterranean ocean fortress, where he would live and reside, and who doesn't want to live on the shores of the Mediterranean? And he would come to Jerusalem for these high holy days, for these festivals. He would stay in Fortress Antonia, and then he would return home. So at some point, he's gotten here, and Matthew introduces us to Pontius Pilate by these words, which I didn't read a minute ago. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and elders of the people reached the decision to have Jesus put to death. They bound him, led him away, and turned him over to Pilate the governor. All right, so let's think through our timeline. So we have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's gone there. He spent time in prayer. The uh, Judas has left and has now returned, leading uh, temple authorities and temple guards in order to arrest Jesus. And so he betrays Jesus with a kiss. Last week we looked at Jesus being taken to Caiaphas's house, where we need to remember that the high priests and temple elders and, and all these officials they spent all night trying to figure out what they are doing with Jesus. They spent all night trying to decide what they could have done. And so then, it's only then that they decided to take Jesus to Pilate. 
I read a different take this week on why they took Jesus to Pilate and on whether or not they could even have, have put Jesus to death themselves. Boy, so an interesting take is that someone wrote that the chief priests could have had Jesus stoned. If you go and read the book of Acts chapter 7, uh, that's when we read about the first martyr of the church, isn't it? And so it's the Apostle Stephen who's been teaching and preaching and, and leading worship in Jerusalem and doing all of those things. And what does the Scripture tell us? It tells us in Acts chapter 7 that the, the people took Stephen after questioning him and the, the chief priests and, and others had him stoned right there in the city. So the issue is not that the chief priests could not have Jesus stoned. They couldn't execute him by crucifixion. I think the larger issue is that night they were up all night trying to figure out how they were going to have Jesus killed with a Roman garrison that is now a, lead, you know, a legion of Roman soldiers. So over 6,000 Roman soldiers is now in the city. Pilots there, all of the informants that inform for the Roman government and Roman's army are, are walking the streets and they're making sure that everything that is happening is what is supposed to happen. They don't want any uprising. They don't want any uproar. They don't want anything that's going to raise the temperature of the people of Jerusalem. And so a stoning is going to do that, isn't it? See, that's why they took Jesus to Pilate. It's because they knew that for the only way for, for this man to be killed, it had to have been done by Rome. Because in any other way, the Roman soldiers, they would have stepped in, wouldn't they? I mean, the fact that, that they would bring in over 6,000 soldiers to be centered in and around Jerusalem during the week of Passover, I think for us should be a pretty significant indicator of the level of, of significance that the Romans saw the potential for what could happen. And so what better than just to flood the city with soldiers? To serve as a visible reminder, to also uh, be there, and to make sure that there were no riots, no uprising, no unrest, that just worship, just sacrifice, just Sabbath occurred, and then the people would return home from Jerusalem. See, what the chief priests decided is they needed the Romans to publicly execute Jesus. It was only the Romans that could hang Jesus on a cross outside of the city gates alongside one of the major roads as people entered and exited the city. They needed the Romans to make that statement of what it meant to, to cross and, and to, to proclaim a different faith and to proclaim a different belief than they themselves believed. And really what it is is they needed Pilate, didn't they? So they showed up at his home and I think it's important for us to read that Matthew says early that morning. This was not a normal time. I mean, think about if you have the police knocking on your door early in the morning, that's not a normal time, is it? Or if you get a phone call from one of your children early in the morning, there better be a really good reason, right? See, and I think Matthew wants us to see that. And so he's setting it up that this is, this is not ordinary. That the chief priests have, A, spent, up, spent all night trying to figure out what they're going to do with Jesus. Then they decide that Jesus needs to be put to death. And so then the scripture tells us early in the morning, they reached the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. 
So basically they decide we can't put him to death. We need Pilate to do it. And so they go. This is not normal. This is not a time when Pilate is, is sitting in his, his chair where the governor resides there in the fortress, uh, handing out judgment and dealing with issues and other business. This is not a time when he is normally receiving people to come visit him and talk with him. I mean, they basically, they've either interrupted his breakfast or he hasn't even had his first cup of coffee and they're bringing Jesus to him. And then they demand that he come out to them. Because Jesus was crucified on the, on the, the Friday, right? Which is the beginning of the Sabbath. Sabbath begins when the sun goes down that evening. And so for the chief priests and others to be able to conduct the business of the temple and to even to be ritually clean for their own practice of Sabbath, they couldn't go into Pilate's palace. They couldn't go into to his uh, fortress because it was a home of a Gentile. So they bring him early in the morning and then they demand him to come out to them. See, Matthew wants us to see that this is important. This isn't a normal time. Pilate's not conducting normal business, and then they're telling him to come out, and now they're showing up with this bound man on his doorstep. They went early in the morning. And so Pilate takes Jesus into the fortress, and we read the words that we read in the scripture a little while ago. But if you think about it, his opinion is the only one that matters. He's the only one who can officially be the one to, to pronounce the judgment of death for, on someone from Rome. He's the, the only voice, the final voice, the only one in that region that can do this. And so he talks with Jesus. He questions Jesus. And he determines that Jesus is innocent. His wife sends a message saying, Have nothing to do with that innocent man. For I've suffered much today in a dream. Matthew's gospel is the only one that tells us about Pilate's wife sending a message. But see, Pilate determines that he's innocent and he goes back with Jesus to the chief priest and, and they've been since gathered a crowd. Now see, this wasn't a crowd from all of Israel. This wasn't a crowd made up of Galileans who have heard Jesus preach and who have heard Jesus teach and who have witnessed the miracles and who have seen all these things. In all likelihood, the crowd who is gathered there is a crowd of people that are, are from Jerusalem. So they haven't heard what Jesus is saying. They haven't been able to witness his ministry. All they're relying on is what other people are telling him, that, that this man proclaims he's God. This man claims he's this. This man says he's this. And so when given a choice for who, does to be, to who was to be set free, they chose to free a man that was rightfully convicted and to sentence to death a man who was innocent of all of his accusations. Setting true the words of the scripture, the words that we read in the Old Testament, that the one who was sinless would now be the one to pay the price for my sins, for your sins, and for the sins of the world. They set into wheel, into motion, the words of, of like the prophet Isaiah, who says that we all like sheep have gone astray. And each of us has turned our own way to set into motion the promise that, that the shepherd is going to come. A shepherd who, who we know his voice and who would offer us hope and life and everything else. Even as we turn our own way.
See, friends, this is where the gospel is so redeeming. Because Jesus, I mean, Isaiah, you know, says we, we've all turned our own way. We've strayed. And, and it doesn't say what our way has to, or it doesn't say what, what different ways we're going because our ways are different. But we know from the scripture that the consequences are the same. And then we know from the scripture today that the redemption is for each and every one of us. Because Matthew tells us that in Pilate's judgment hall, a man that was deemed sinless was the man that was condemned for death. For you and for me. And in doing so, he brought us hope. In dying, he offers us life. And he brings the resurrection so that we can live and be in relationship with God as he breaks down the barriers and the walls that keep us from truly following him, from truly worshiping him, and from truly experiencing the grace, the hope, and the love that God offers for each of you. Amen.